papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime, and gore. The Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis on what's going on in the news media these days. Here in the studio, we have three editors from the golden age of newspapering and one young buck. Ish. <laughs> young ish. <laughs> young ish. That's right. One guy still in the trenches here who's actually making it happen. I'm Rex Smith from the Upstate American, formerly editor of the Times Union. Next to me is Judy Patrick, the vice president of the New York Press Association, who was editor of the Daily Gazette in Schenectady. And then there is Barbara Lombardo, who was executive editor of the Saratogian and the Record in Troy. And, of course, rounding out the panel, the aforementioned Ian Pickus, the news director of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. Sir. Well, I describe myself as being in the bridge generation the other day because uh-huh. we've been hiring some people who are right out of college. And that's sort of the nature of things. That's how it goes. And the beat goes on. I'm sure you've all experienced it. And now I look at them as having you know, a lot to learn like I did when I was starting out those many years ago. And it comes as we're in the middle of our October fun drive here at our home station of WAMC. And so often on this show, when the conversation is about how do you sustain journalism, who's going to pay for it, we are very happy to be one of the exceptions to the rule lately in American media and American public media. As we speak, $800,000 has been raised in the first four days of fundraising. I assume by the time many people hear this, the fund drive will be a success. And we're just so grateful for that. This is a model that I think other people are going to have to adopt going forward as we look for nonprofit news sources. People do it with a newsletter. They do it with a subscriber-based podcast. You get what you pay for. And this is a rare success story. So we're just so, so thankful to everybody who's pledged shows like this, The Media Project. They don't just happen. I I noticed something that you were doing that was new this year that I thought was fantastic. And that was ringing the bell, not for the (laughs) angel's wings, the type of angel. But whenever you had a new member, somebody joined for the first time, there was a bell ringing which was a great way to acknowledge and encourage new memberships. And I'm hoping that you'll be using the information from new members to see the demographics of who's joining and then to follow up with them on what they're interested in listening to. But congratulations on everything that's going so well with the drive and with the uh, idea of lauding the new members. Thank you. And we hear a lot about it in ascertainment surveys that we do every year in our community advisory board meetings about what people want to hear. Uh, Number one almost always is climate change and the environment. Is that right? Isn't that interesting? Well, that shows who your listeners are. They're well-informed listeners because climate change, well, actually it speaks to this. I actually just did this research. A Pew study found that eight out of 10 Democrats believe that climate change is an essential and important issue. Only 23% of Republicans do. Isn't that interesting? That's a survey from just a few weeks ago by Pew. So it does say something that you have a well-educated listenership that is adjusted to new developments, because that, of course, wouldn't have been what they would have said 10 years ago. Absolutely not. And in terms of new members, you're right. We know the average age is always somewhere around 59, 60, 61, 62. But we know those next generations that I was talking about are finding WAMC increasingly, and we just got to kind of meet them where they are and bring them into the tent. You know, public radio has a long tradition of doing this kind of public fundraising, 
And as newspapers start to gravitate towards that as an important way for them to raise money, I think we have to overcome the resistance in the legacy print media of asking for money. As I was listening to WAMC, I'm thinking, how comfortable would a reporter or editor be of being out there like that and lobbying for money to be sent to them to help support what they do? I think it's an obstacle that we need to deal with. Hmm. You know, well, of course, with the for-profit media, it's a harder issue. You ask people for money all the time when you say, please advertise with us. <laughs> or pay a $1.50 a day for this product yeah, or whatever it yeah. is. Yeah, it's hard. And a lot of the, as Ian mentioned, there are other funding formulas that are being tried. I'm on the board of a couple of not-for-profit newsrooms that rely heavily upon donors and foundations as well as subscribers. And the difficulty is that foundation support tends to shift around. They want to give you money to help launch something and then they'll move to help somebody else. And that can devastate an organization that has uh, grown to rely upon it. Uh, We've been a part of a lot of those partnerships that start with a, a head of steam and they're funded for two or three years. And then year three, you never hear about it anymore. And that's definitely part of it. And the hope is you just do some good work while the money's there to do it. And of course, the difficulty is the smaller communities aren't big enough to draw the attention of the foundations. They serve a few people. And that's why there's so many news deserts around the country, places where there used to be weekly newspapers that would provide the news of the community, where now town boards and library boards and school boards go without any coverage at all, and people have no idea what's going on in their community. So that's an ongoing issue that we have to see what develops in the digital age in those communities, because after all, the newspapers in those communities developed in the 19th century or early in the 20th in some cases, only after people had lived there and after enough business sprang up so that it would support them. So we'll see. There may be new models that will develop to uh, support these smaller communities that need to have news coverage. One interesting element in our own community that we have seen just recently, let's talk about the controversy over Two Buttons Deep, which some of our listeners may not be at all familiar with. It's a rather cheeky digital site that basically... Well, I shouldn't describe it as a site because it entirely depends upon social media for their content. But two very creative and bold young people who 10 years ago launched this notion of community events and coverage of the lighter side of things targeted to a young demographic. Uh, when I was editor of the Times Union, we partnered very quickly with them because we were desperate to try to reach young people. And they've done a very good job. Suddenly, they have lost all of their advertising as a result of criticism about a transphobic remark that they overheard while they were taping something and one of the hosts of Two Buttons Deep seemed to be laughing at it, and uh, the advertisers pulled out. But did the advertisers pull out, or did they announce that they were not accepting? So they might have had pullouts. But then they said, <laughs> for the rest of the year, we're not going to be relying on advertisers to let the thing blow over. So, mm. they, I mean, there's a distinction there. It was proactive. Could be. I think there's a case study here for crisis management and communications. I should say I have a lot of admiration for some of the things that they've accomplished I think all social media-based news outlets need to learn about world building and characters and that kind of thing that make you endeared to being in someone's feet all the time. And having a sense of voice, this is something Two Buttons Deep has been very successful at. This is such a Byzantine story, but effectively, you know, they played a transphobic comment for a laugh. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. And not until the backlash started did they apologize for it. And now they're on the defensive about the backlash. So this has not been an expert response probably to what was just supposed to be a fun video about a beer gathering in Fulton County, I believe. And there are political implications because the person who made the transphobic remark was a town supervisor. Who denies it, but (laughs) it looks just like him. Looks just like him. Looks like him, sounds like him. (laughs) Yes. When you apologize for something, you don't also be defensive and say, oh, everybody's beating us up, by the way, and we're losing advertisers. You just apologize and leave it at that for now. One of the key issues in this case is that they edit the video. They purposely let it in. They could not say that it was an inadvertent remark. I also would recommend if you're going to go to a bar where a lot of people have been drinking, you have to be really careful about what people around you are saying. And do you hold everyone accountable to everything they say when they're drunk in a bar and put it out on social media? One of the issues now is they took the video down, but the video's out there. And Mm -hmm. it's a good lesson about something online doesn't just disappear because you want it to. I also think it's a lesson in, do you get to try to make things right? Are you allowed in our life anymore to make a mistake? This was definitely a terrible error in judgment. I thought it was mortifying and hurtful, but can you make a mistake, apologize for it, try to make it as right as you can moving forward, admit you screwed up, and then keep going. I'd hate to see this be a death knell for these energetic, creative people that are really providing a good source of fun information for an audience. Well, I think that raises another question, too, which is, what standard should they be held to? They have not said, hi, we're very serious journalists, and here are all the videos of people, you know, getting wasted in the picnic area at the track. They've not set out to be held to journalistic standards at all times. So the question is, what is Two Buttons Deep? Is it a social media company that partners with local businesses and gets funding to go to certain events and you know, sort of make happenings and repost memes? Or is it a news outlet? And this incident may tell us the answer to that. Or it's some combination thereof. You can be kind of both and you could be kind of spunky and, and interesting and fun, but you have a responsibility as civil human beings and business people and journalists of some sort to do the right thing and and to apologize when you screwed up and you don't get to make the same mistake twice. Mm-hmm. That must have been an issue for the Times Union when you initially paired with them or partnered with them, what exactly they were. Yes, and the question was what happens if their content is beyond anything that we were comfortable with? And we actually accepted the fact that uh, our name might be associated with a cheeky operation that would be difficult for her corporation to tolerate but we thought well it's reaching a different audience than we typically reach and it we didn't run into a situation I don't think where there was something that was so offensive there wasn't in my mind anything racist for example or homophobic or transphobic or sexist well maybe somewhat sexist (laughs) but it was nothing so terrible that I felt that it was awkward for the brand of the Times Union to associate with it but we did think about it some but we pushed the envelope yeah pushing the envelope and you know sometimes for a staid media company like Inc. on Crushed Trees (laughs) that, that business it's good for us to push the envelope we had not much of a tradition of doing that kind of thing but if you have readers who are accustomed to that they can take offense In the 90s, I remember when I was the editor of The Record in Troy, I had a retired editor from The Record of Bygone Days who was so upset that we published Dave Barry's column. (laughs) 
Oh, my um, gosh. And he would come in and say, it's just bathroom humor, Rex. It's bathroom humor. And I said, no, this is a great column. It's really fun. So, you know, your standards change over time. And it's hard sometimes for consumers of the media to go along with it. Even the comics change when we carried the boy and his tiger. Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin and Hobbes. Wonderful strip. <laughs> I just love Calvin and Hobbes. But I had an old lady who actually called up. <laughs> Funny story. And she said, what's with that little boy? <laughs> and, and his tiger. Why is that a story? And coincidentally, just a few minutes after I hung up from that call, there was a bomb scare at the newspaper. And so we always referred to it as the Calvin and Hobbes terrorists. Who were <laughs> and, and, and I want to know, what do you mean by old lady? Oh, dear. <laughs> Probably older than myself at this point. Right. I have reached a milestone. This is this is my birthday. So uh, Happy birthday. Today is your birthday? Isn't that amazing? Happy yeah. birthday. Well, I'm the old guy in the room here, you know, and how recently it seems that I was the young guy on this show. That's how long I've been on this show. <laughs> well, keep doing it till you get it right, okay? Yeah, right. It's a good idea. It's the Media Project from Northeast Public Radio. I'm Rex Smith. That was Barbara Lombardo. You've been hearing Judy Patrick and Ian Pickus, the news director here at WAMC, and we're very happy to be with you. You know, Ian is a guy who does a little vignette here, and I guess we call it a, an interstitial, once a week on games, uh, which is a fun piece. It's a mind bender, right? That yeah, you try to have basically a kind of wordplay trivia show yeah. called Any Questions. It's the last local segment of the work week, Friday at 6.25 p.m., just to kind of end on a high note. Yeah, it's fun. And we have this amazing notion. We just got a statistic in here about the New York Times. It turns out that games are so popular at the New York Times that they've become one of the four main pillars bundled to keep subscribers paying each month, along with the athletic, cooking, and wire cutter. And so then you put the games together, and that tells you something about what supports big mainstream media these days. Games. Media, a five-letter word. I'm going to start with that today. You get three vowels. Hey, that's really great. Let's hear it for Wordle, uh, which the Times wisely acquired. You know, these are things that the Times has bought. They bought Wirecutter. They bought The Athletic. They bought Wordle. I think they created... Yes, yeah, so their game staff created Connection. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but with a little help from a BBC game show that existed. Right. Called uh, Only Connect, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, it doesn't sound at all common. <laughs> so when you talk about our need to diversify our sources of revenue, one of the ways you can go to, as at times, has gone to word games. These are all word-related games. It's not like Zelda. And I think it taps into what its audience is interested in. I can tell you that I used to always look at the homepage of the New York Times in the morning and read the top story. Now, before I do that, I do my Wordle, and now I've added that Silly Connections games, which, ah. which can slow me down considerably. Um, I resisted doing Spelling Bee for a long time, and I have gotten into that as well. It's addictive, yeah. but it is an example of a way to bolster the main goal of the paper, which is reporting. It's a reminder how even in the old days when it was all print that we in the newsroom would sometimes underestimate the value of things other than news to the readers, which was the comics, the bridge column, the advice columns, things the crossword. that the crosswords, Sudoku, the things that give our product a broader reach and a broader interest. Well, I think, and that's probably true at WAMC as well. You know, the little interstitials that you run are so interesting. You know, the changing planet, Earthwise, Earthwise, right? Sure. Uh, Stardate, Stardate. I love. You know, when I was the editor of the Record, it was an afternoon paper in those days, and I had to be at work at five a.m. And Stardate used to play in the middle of the night, you know, as I was driving to work in the dark through the countryside of Rensselaer County. And it's still, when I hear that sound 
first star date, it takes me back, and I feel like I'm in the dark, and I feel like I'm 38 years old again. How wonderful. But uh, anyway, those things, though, I think really do appeal to listeners and keep them tucked in while you then give them an opportunity to hear the news after that. I remember when Alan Shartok, formerly of this station and show, interviewed Leanne Hansen, who was the two-decade host of Weekend Edition Sunday, And she was talking about, as she was retiring, that Weekend Edition Sunday was kind of meant to be the Sunday paper on the radio. Mm -hmm. So you had your news, you had your investigations, you had a lot of arts and culture, and then you had the puzzle segment with Will Shorts, and it gave everybody a little bit of a breather. And I think the Times has just kind of glommed onto this in a maximalist way. Uh, These are extremely faddish, popular games, and they are part of people's social media diet now. You're seeing it in sports, too, with, like, Immaculate Grid. So I guess we like playing things, and I think there's time to do that in between all of the, uh, you know, blood and guts and gore that we usually cover. (laughs) Right, I agree with you. It's a great point about the need for a respite from the news. It's like, I, I can't read one more story at this point in the afternoon about congressional dysfunction. I need a break, and a good break is something that challenges my mind. It's not just tic-tac-toe. It's coming up with a bunch of words or a bunch of connections. And it's good for your brain, those of us who are uh, aging. I didn't lose the word there. We're all aging. (laughs) Hopefully we're all aging. So I've been keeping up with the conversation, so I know we're talking about But she's playing a game on her phone at the same (laughs) time. But I I had forgotten to say something that I wanted to mention about the two buttons deep. Oh, well, okay um, then. Fiasco, or whatever you want to call it. (laughs) And that was that as a result of the coverage of that incident, reported in multiple papers, but the Gloversville Leader Herald reported that somebody in their town has decided to run for Fulton County supervisor Mm -hmm. against the incumbent who is being accused of being the person who said that transphobic remark. Mm -hmm. And that happened as a result of this coverage. Mm -hmm. So there is... Real life implications of all of this going on. Uh, And that's all I have to say about that. Okay, thank you. Back to you, Rex. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much. But hold it. We mentioned sports before, and, and we, so we, we, we need to get onto the sports segment of this program because speaking of things that motivate readers, you know, it is not an accident that in a lot of newspapers, the B section, that is the A section is the main section with news in it, but the B section is sports because it's very important. Not an accident that you flip over the tabloids and there's the sports cover. So it's a huge driver of readership, of circulation, and it is the only thing in terms of live television that actually is keeping networks going, right? It is sports that is drawing viewers to television. So in that light, there's a question about sports journalism, however, which has always been a little bit suspect, right? Ian, you're, you're more of the sports... Uh... We're always baffled by sports journalism. Yeah. <laughs> what do they say? The sandbox? Yeah, it is. It's tough because they're right there with the players, and there's now a huge controversy because a reporter after Game 2 of the playoff series between the Phillies and the Braves, a Fox sports reporter, overheard some back and forth between opposing players that uh, was kind of trash talk and now is criticized for using stuff heard in the locker room. Is this unusual? Well, it opened up a really fascinating debate about access to the clubhouse, to the locker room, and that space for sports reporters, I think we talked about a few weeks ago, is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. The athletes have their own profiles. A lot of times they tell their own stories. But this was really an interesting flashpoint in all of this. And for people who didn't follow it, just to set the scene, 
Bryce Harper, who is the Phillies' best player, was doubled off first base to end the game. And then this Braves player, Arcia, was heard kind of making fun of Harper for the way the game ended. And of course, because it was overheard by a reporter, it then was covered before the next game and it became, quote, bulletin board material for the Phillies. And the bad side of all that is that then there was a discussion of from the players. Number one, this is why we don't want reporters in here. And number two, what you hear in here is not always on the record. And there was a big debate about what you use, what you don't use, and whether the clubhouse should even be open to the press. I will just add to this in a sport that is absolutely desperate for attention and relevance to have players saying, let's keep the reporters out. Um, that definitely fell flat on its face as far as I'm concerned. It's not only sports where there are supposedly off the record venues, let's say. It used to be when I was covering the politics under Mario Cuomo's tenure, speaking of being old, uh, second floor of the Capitol where the governor's office is, the executive chamber is there. That used to be a place that you could wander. And if there was an open door, like the lieutenant governor's office always had an open door, you could wander in there and, and talk to people. You could wander up to the fourth floor of the Capitol where the financial staff of the legislature was and drop in and talk to people. Nowadays, Security keeps reporters out of there, and it is really hard to uh, <laughs> pick up some of that stuff. The legislature is cracking down on letting reporters on the floor, which is often the only way you can reach actual sitting members, trying to say that reporters shouldn't be in places where they might overhear something as though it's not the people's business, as though politicians aren't really always on the record, I would think, unless there's an agreement otherwise that they're not. So I think this effort to control the media, to kind of pen us in, is especially potent in sports, but it's a real factor in politics as well. I think there are parallels, but there's a big difference in sports. They are not elected officials. They are not accountable to the public. Their owners want publicity and need publicity, and that's why media are allowed into the into the locker rooms in the first place. I kind of feel for the athletes because you're going to have trash talk and just chatting with each other. That person wasn't being interviewed. They were not talking to the reporter, but the reporter just heard it. So that said, I think that for the athletes, the rule of thumb has to be that when you're in the area where there might be reporters, then you need to keep it zipped if you don't want something that you say heard. It was a more complicated scenario for this case than others because when it's the usual season, the people in, on the teams know who's covering them and who's coming in. And this was a playoff game, right? right. And then so that there's a lot more media, there's people milling about that they may or may not know, may not recognize, so they might have been not realized that there was a, a reporter in earshot. But even seeing that there's people you don't know around you, you should be more careful about what you say. So I, I would just say they, they have to just err on the side of caution. You know, there are times when you kind of agree to an off-the-record setting that turns out to be inappropriate. And, and let me just tell you a little shameful example. I, I referred earlier to the golden age of newspapering. But when I was a young reporter covering Mario Cuomo, we would fly on the state plane, a twin turboprop, and go places like that. Indeed, the golden age of, <laughs> of, of journalism. Uh, you know, a half dozen reporters would climb onto the plane and we'd fly out with the governor to Buffalo or to Indianapolis or wherever. 
So it was on the record, and you could sit, and there's a bench seat where three reporters would fit, and another one would sit over here, and you could talk to the governor. You'd have time to understand what he was thinking, and, and you could interview him. But the agreement was on the return flight at night, and Mario Cuomo always flew back to spend the night in the mansion. On the return flight, it was off the record. Now, that why? would never happen now. That would never happen I do want now. Sarah LaDuke to come in and sing, Those Were the Days, My Friend. <laughs> we could uh, probably get that I'll arranged. I love my donation. <laughs> yeah, and let me just tell you, one of the interesting things, Governor Cuomo would get his aide would fill his glass, a little water glass for him, in which I later learned was straight vodka. <laughs> so no wonder he didn't want us to be on the record. But, you know, that would not have been the kind of thing you can do now. We just live in a different era. Good, I think. You know, it, it is not appropriate to have that kind of off-the-record experience. On the other hand, I felt that I kind of knew more about Mario Cuomo. I understood him better because I could see him when he at least pretended that he thought that we weren't going to pick up what he was saying. You know, I think he was always on his guard. But anyway, it was just an interesting thing, and that is another way in which reporters find themselves sometimes in situations where you are expected to not report what you hear. Well, with respect to baseball, I think something just broke when we had the pandemic and all athletic press conferences went to Zoom. The locker rooms were not open, and a lot of the players today have not experienced what it used to be like, and that was obviously better for the reporters. And I think we haven't, that hasn't all figured itself out yet, um, coming back from the extreme limit on access. And I would just point uh, the, the offending player here, Arcia, to the example of Derek Jeter who for 20 years took every question he was asked and never said anything in his response. So there is a way around it. <laughs> and was, I should he say he's adept. my idol regardless. He was, he was adept at that, though. He's, he's good at it. Baseball been very good to yeah. me, as they say. Yeah, so we finally just have to make note as we go out about uh, the fact that there are Republican debates coming up. NBC is going to host the next Republican debate of the presidential candidates partnering with some extreme right-wing outlets with a history of racism and terrible content. Salem Radio Network and Rumble, two right-wing media companies that have a history of extremist rhetoric. It makes you think, again, back to this question of old media trying to partner with new media to reach a new audience. Oh, it's not just new media. I mean, I think there must be some more respectable forms of new media that they could have partnered with. This is a horrible mistake. We're warning you now, NBC or the Peacock Network, this is not a good idea. Shouldn't be doing it. And also, what kind of ratings are you even going to get with a Republican debate? Not even all the candidates, I bet, will even show up. Maybe they will, but will you sell your soul for a, a few rating points? Yes, they have. All right. That's the end of our time for today on The Media Project. Uh, how about that? A lot of topics covered. Thank you for that. Judy Patrick and Barbara Lombardo and Ian Pickus and I'm Rex Smith with gratitude to our producer, David Gustina, and you folks for joining us once again this week on The Media Project. Fight to wage. Ting -ling -ling, newspaper guild. Got a free new world to build. Meet the people. That's a thrill. All together fits the bill. The Media Project is a national production of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. This week's projectors include former Times Union editor and current Substack columnist of the Upstate American, Rex Smith, Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette and vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association, Barbara Lombardo, the former editor of the Saratogian and a journalism professor at the University at Albany, and WAMC News Director Ian Pickus. You can listen to The Media Project anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. 
I'm your producer, David Gustina. Thanks for listening. Could be prostitution, I don't know. Tingling-a-ling, circulation, tingling-a-ling, advertising. Get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.